Hello, and thanks for listening to this week's message from the Napoleon Church of the Nazarene, where we exist to help people take their next step in a transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. We hope that as you listen, you are both encouraged and challenged as you take that next step in your walk with Christ. How many of you have taken a trip over this last year? Not 2020 or 2022 yet, but how many of you have taken a trip over the last year? How many of you have ridden on a plane? Yeah? How many of you have, uh, have taken a road trip? Yeah, see, like we did that this last summer, right? We decided it would be a good idea to um, drive out to Yellowstone, all right? So it ended up being, I don't know how many thousand miles, 4,000 miles in the van. I think it was like, uh, what was it, 80 hours that we were in the van over the trip life. Like we thought that was a good idea, right? I remember we were in the middle of Wyoming and um, I loved it. I, I could move out there in a heartbeat. Like I, I could, if I could buy a second home, I'd buy it right now out in the, in the, in the West like that. But I remember we were driving through Wyoming and uh, anybody ever driven through Wyoming? Oh, yeah. And I remember Colby like looking out the window from the back seat and being like, are you kidding me? We have been driving all day and we're still in the middle of nowhere, Right? Road trips are road trips are uh, road trips are fun. Let me ask you this: of all of us that have taken trips this year, how many of you have taken a guilt trip? Yeah, those aren't those aren't as much fun, are they? But I guarantee every one of you this past year has went down that road, taken that trip, has experienced guilt. We're all very acquainted with guilt. It doesn't take a rocket science to, scientist to see quickly that we are flawed, mistake-prone, failure-driven, and self-centered. And in reality, this causes all sorts of problems and a mess. Couple that with the, the reality that um, we're wired naturally with a conscience. And instinctively... We understand what it is quickly in our lives to experience guilt. Guilt because we live in a fallen, flawed world where we make fallen, flawed choices. Because of the, of the reality of sin that exists in our world. In fact, I would say that guilt or sin and then the consequences of our sin, the guilt, the condemnation that we experience become a major obstacle in our life that we absolutely have to deal with in some way. Generally, we find ourselves doing three things with guilt, with sin and the, and the, and the guilt that is caused from our sin. First thing I notice is we bury it. We bury it, right? Um, <clears throat> it happens. We blow it. We experience guilt and shame from it. And we try to bury it. 
You ever tried to bury it, just forget about it, push it down, go on? The problem with that is, is that we've all experienced the reality that it doesn't stay buried. It's like, you know, the walking dead zombies. Anybody watch that show? I don't watch that show. Don't raise your hand if you watch that show. I'll look at you a little bit weird. No, I'm teasing. But like, you know, the idea of those zombies coming back. That's kind of like what happens when we try to bury our sin and guilt. Um, I love what, or I don't love, but it's so telling what David said in Psalm 32. After David has absolutely blown it. I mean, you talk about stepping in it. You talk about failing. You talk about experiencing uh, guilt, uh, David chooses to not only um, make major decisions in his personal life that included adultery and then consequently being responsible for the death of the man that he committed adultery with his wife. I mean, this is a sordid page six, or actually it's the front page headline news story, right? And David in Psalm 32, as he's dealing with sin and subsequent guilt, he says this. When I kept silent, when I tried to bury it, my bones wasted away. I groaned all day long. Day and night I felt your hand heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Right? This is what happens when we try to bury it. It never works. This is why our world is full of substance abuse, of obsessions, of filling our lives with so many things because often we're trying to just bury who we are, what we've done, and how we manage or deal with that. And so the escape for us becomes substances, it becomes experiences, it becomes relationships, it becomes all sorts of things, all told and all the while, most of the time we're trying to bury the reality of who we are, where we stand, what our identity is, what do we do with what we've done, right? We bury it, we bury it. It never works out. Watch what David said after that. He said, but I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. I mean, we minimize, we rationalize, we compromise. We're kind of like that Chinese fortune cookie also. Commit a sin twice and it won't feel like a sin. We just, we just bury it with more sins. We just let ours, right? But we're always trying to bury it. Remember the words, though, of Proverbs that whoever conceals or buries their sin does not prosper. Second thing we do often is we blame others, right? Just go to the first sin, the first episode of guilt, the first reality of brokenness in our world. As Adam and Eve step in it, so to speak, they sin, they fall. And what's involved in that story? 
yeah, God, I did it, but honestly, it was the woman that you gave me. Right? So much a part of our world and how we deal with the sin that we bear and the guilt that we deal with is we look to to put it on others as for the reason why we made the choices we did and suffered the guilt that we do. We blame others. We use blame to balance our guilt. It's like a scale in our minds. When you feel guilty, you blame the other person to bring the scale to balance. I love what is said of the word blame, though. To blame others is simply to be lame. You like that? Blaming is being lame. But yet that's what we do as we try to to rationalize and deal with the sin and the guilt that we have. Third thing I notice a lot of us do often is we beat ourselves up. We beat ourselves up. We self-consciously try to pay for our own mistakes. It was in an article in Christianity Today that uh, Mark Galley, kind of a noted writer, notes how deep down the idea of punishment for sin actually makes sense to us. It's not arbitrary or primitive. It actually is kind of like this idea that in our hearts, in our minds, with our conscience, that punishment somehow balances the moral books. If I could tell you how many times as a pastor I have, have chatted with people who because of past mistakes are always looking over their shoulder or always waiting for the punishment to come for the decisions they made or the fact that because they did a number of things 15, 20 years later, they deserve and they're just waiting and anticipating and framing everything that happens in their life by the idea that, well, I did this, so I deserve this. Right? It's just part and parcel of who we are as humans. And so often, what do we do with our sin and the subsequent guilt? We just beat ourselves up. We try to punish ourselves. Or we entertain the idea of punishment is because of. I mean, think about even in your home growing up. It wasn't just enough for your dad to tell your sister to stop. It was only enough when your sister then got grounded. Right? Only after not just the action stopping, but subsequent punishment was given, did you feel satisfied. Come on, amen? Like, this is why, and again, I've admitted to this, I love this stuff, but like, um, that's why Hollywood revenge movies work. Like this past year, there's been revenge movies that millions of dollars and we eat it up. Because in spite of the predictable fireworks and excessive violence, we keep coming to such movies precisely because we are deeply satisfied by the punishment that is going to happen to the offender. Amen? I love that stuff. It probably makes you think, I'm never going to cross that guy. No, I just, I, I like, I, I have a deep sense of justice. And when somebody is wronged, I want that to be made right. And I want there to be punishment for your motive and action. 
Come on, you're with me, right? We beat ourselves up. What we find, though, is actually that living with this guilty conscience or living beating ourselves up, it doesn't, it doesn't fix anything either. Listen to David when he talks about this in Psalm 38. My guilt has overwhelmed me. It's like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly, because of my bad decisions. I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There is no health in my body. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of hearts. All my longings are lying open before you, Lord. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart pounds. My strength fails. Even the light has gone from my eyes. This is us when we try to deal with our own sin, failure, and guilt. It just crushes us. It saps our energy and our strength destroys us. It even causes us to sabotage our own success because we don't believe we deserve anything. How often have I watched people who have all of a sudden made it big in the world who often turn to sinful and harmful habits and they will explain to you later the reason why they did, why they blew everything that they had, why they had everything in front of them, fame, fortune, and, and they still committed crimes is because they live with a deep sense of I don't deserve what I've been given and I don't know how to handle that. problem with us is when we're punishing ourselves the problem is we never know when enough is enough and I would remind you of this guilt says I did something bad shame says I am bad And what happens naturally in our lives is dealing with the guilt from our sin naturally causes us to, yeah, I did something bad. But as we continue to entertain that, as we don't deal with it, as we bury it or we try to blame or we beat ourselves up, it quickly will move to shame where we become, uh, like that becomes our identity. Not only did I do something bad, but I am somebody. I would remind you that Satan uses your shame to drive you away from God. God uses your guilt to draw you to his grace. Guilt is God-given. Guilt is natural. It's inherent to all of us. It's not pleasant, but it's necessary. And if we learn to properly deal with the guilt that is from our sin it has a wonderful work in our life but if we don't it turns to shame and shame always drives us away from God himself and so over these next three weeks I want to think about this is love what does love look like how does love act and I want to remind you just this morning of Jesus' first words from the cross. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Father, 
forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. You know, if you would have paid attention to Jesus' ministry, the first things he said in the, in the synagogue when he stood up and quoted Isaiah 61, he uses actually in the, the Old Testament reference that he tells about himself, two times the word forgiveness is used. And it's in effect God standing up and saying, what I am about as the Messiah, as God's anointed one, is that forgiveness is my work. Forgiveness was Christ's work. So as he hangs on the cross, as he's suffering and uttering these words in the middle of being crucified, Father, forgive them, we probably should recognize that that's what he's always said he was going to be about. That was his mission. That was his work. That's what he practiced and did throughout his ministry. I remember reading a conversation between uh, Brother Andrew, the famous Christian missionary, and a um, Muslim sheik. And where Brother Andrew was at in that, in that country, the sheik he was talking to had actually ordered the killing of eight people because of what they had done to somebody else. And Brother Andrew had looked at the sheik and said, who appointed you judge and jury and gave you the authority to order such killings? The sheik replied, I am not the judge and jury. I am simply merely an instrument of God's justice. The Islamic understanding. There was a moment of silence and then Brother Andrew asked, Well then, in your understanding of justice, what place is there then for forgiveness? To which the sheik replied, forgiveness is only for those who deserve it. Forgiveness is only for those who deserve it. Two completely different world views at work. Both with a common starting point about God, but with radically different views of God. And this brings us to the tension when we talk about forgiveness. We are inherently pulled to fairness, justice, and equality. We long for a world full of these things. And honestly, forgiveness sounds like a fairy tale. It doesn't compute. It's not two plus two. And so often we don't really, really grab a hold of the reality of what God's work has always been about. About what he's trying to accomplish. About what, as he hangs on the cross, the first words he utters about us and his mission and our need is, Father, forgive Tim Keller observed that God's grace and forgiveness, while free to the recipient, are always costly for the giver. From the earliest parts of the Bible, it was understood that God could not forgive without sacrifice. It would would not um, equal his justice and his holiness and who he was in his rightness. 
No one who is seriously wrong can just forgive the perpetrator. When you forgive, that means you absorb the loss and the debt. You bear it yourself and therefore all forgiveness then is costly. And think about it. If, I, if you run through my yard and hit my fence and tear it down, I can look at you and say, hey, it's all right, man, I forgive you, right? And I can cause you not to have to pay anything for what you've done. But guess what I have to do? Somebody's got to pay, right? Some of you are in there like, yeah, the insurance guy, where's he at? Well, guess who's paying the insurance guy? Somebody's paying, right? Forgiveness is never free. And that's why, unfortunately, so often we've talked about this forgiveness of God. And it's just a fairy tale so often. But we have to understand that what Christ is doing on the cross brings all of fairness and justice and equality and rightness to bear. And this is a real thing. Forgiveness is a real thing. Because somebody paid a price for you and I to be forgiven. Are you with me? Yeah? Okay. Some of you? And this is why how Christ chooses to die to me is so important. This this phrase in my sermon is in bold and italics. But it's not on the screen. But it is like, this is what I wrote this week. It is like all that he suffers, the way that he suffers, is his way of exclaiming to us how much he wants to forgive us. How he suffers, the way that he suffers, is exclaiming to us how much he wants to forgive us. You know, at the time of Jesus, those who committed crimes worthy of capital punishment were stoned to death. Crucifixion was not the Jewish form of execution. Why did they allow Jesus to be crucified? It was a Roman form of punishment. Why didn't they stone him? Because the reason is... The curse that's associated from scripture with being hung on a tree. And that in the Jewish teacher and leader's mind, having Jesus crucified, they thought that this would end any talk about him being the Messiah. Since the Messiah certainly would never have been cursed. You see, the way that Jesus chose to die is exclaiming, proclaiming, declaring this vital, vital truth of how much he longs to forgive us. You've heard this over and over, but I want to remind you that crucifixion is the most terrible method to die. I mean, if you read the accounts, you realize that it just doesn't say, Jesus was crucified, period. It gives us details, 
from his trial. Why? Why do the writers share these explosive parts of the story? Why does God himself want us 20, 20 centuries later? I'm having trouble with math today. 20 centuries later, why does he want us to realize how it went down? Isn't it enough that he just died? Why? As I've been thinking about this this week, I think it's, it is absolutely part of the way that God is trying to help you and I consider how much he dearly loves us, how thorough, how thorough his work is, how he wants us to never lose sight of the fact that God freely, completely forgives us. This is love. This is love. Think about how he scourged. I wanted to show the, the, the clips from the Passion. Uh, but I just, with Facebook, they just shut us down. But think about that. That instead of just going to the cross and dying, which would have been enough, he scourged leather strips on a board, a handle with bone and metal Sharp objects tied in the end where he is taken and they professionally know how to hit him in his back. And that bone and metal and sharp objects tear at his flesh and rip him to shreds. As he suffers that, then they on purpose put this heavy Roman robe on him that would have chafed his skin, that would have been burdensome to wear as they mock him, right? Think about all these details of the story as they then have wired together a, a, a crown of thorns. Like I've been there and I've walked through the field where these things grew and I've picked them myself and I've brought them back and my kids have destroyed them in my office. They're this long, even longer. I couldn't barely touch it and it would break the skin. As they wove that thing together and then they shove it down on his head. Just cutting and scraping and penetrating his skull. And You know how your face, your head bleeds, right? You ever cut yourself? Like it just, like they're just smashing it down and it's the pain physically. It's the mockery emotionally. This is the creator of the world. The sustainer. The one who holds all things together. The one who causes the sun not to move a little bit too close to us so that we might burn up. But also doesn't allow it to go a little bit farther from us so that we do not freeze. Who holds the billions of stars who is, who is power beyond limit our minds could even fathom, is allowing himself to be subjected to this kind of anguish. Why all these details? Why does it go down like this? Why it could have been, it could have been just simpler for him to just, okay, get it over with. Somebody just shoot me in the head. I'm still going to die as an innocent man. Why suffer in this way? I don't know, but it sure seems to implicate over and over. How much does God love you? 
Think about the story. Think about the suffering. Think about the anguish. Think about all those times. At a moment, he could have looked around and said, enough. Like he could have just thought, and everybody's just decimated in front of him. But he hangs through the suffering. Why? Because 20 centuries later, he is always wanting to proclaim to you and I, do you think God loves you? Do you think God meant to forgive you? Do you think he did everything to make sure you understand that when God dies on that cross, that he's trying to proclaim, hey, I forgive you. As he goes to the cross, as I've this week once again tried to, to read again just the, the idea of crucifixion. Like laying him down and think about the arch in your, in your feet, right? Like right where it arches, taking these spikes and just driving it through. Tearing flesh and tendon and muscle and, and then laying him out and putting these nails right here. You couldn't put it here because your flesh would tear away. But putting it right in the right place so that it would stick and your bones would catch it. So you wouldn't just fall off the cross. And then the reality of being brought up and set down. And as soon as that cross hits the hole and goes down to the bottom of the hole, your whole body jars. And then you're laying there suspended trying. And it's like this give and take of trying to relieve the pain here and then trying to relieve the pain there. And I don't have time now, but all of the details of what your body would have gone through as your muscles. And then Jesus himself, they give him something to drink. In essence, they were trying to give him something to knock him out. To take away the pain. It was kind of like an ancient painkiller. An ancient oxycotton. And Jesus tastes it and pushes it away. He wants to absorb the pain. He wants to fully embrace the suffering. Why? Why? I've been asking myself this week, Why? I keep coming back to the reality that he wants me to live with no doubt. No doubt. Not a minute of doubt. This is how much I love you. This is how much I am going to completely forgive you. This is how much I want you to see that when you question, could this be real? Could this work? Is there a cost? Is there a price? Is this a fairy tale? Is this stupid? No. And so with that in mind, if we bury it, if we blame others, if we beat ourselves up so often, how does God ask us to respond to what he's done? To what he is absolutely proclaimed it was uh brennan manning how many of you know who brennan manning is the famous spiritual author of our age wrote the ragmuck ragmuffin gospel some of the most powerful writings on god's grace that i've ever written brennan manning is a very unique person 
His life was full of a lot of stuff. But I'll tell you one thing. He understood at some point God's forgiveness. Brendan Manning tells about the beginning of his life. Uh, He had a best friend, Ray. And him and Ray went to school together, hung out together, graduated together, did everything together. They They double dated. They bought a car together. They even enlisted in the army together. They went to boot camp together. And they actually fought in the Korean War on the front lines together. One night while sitting in their foxhole, Brennan was talking about their home in Brooklyn. All the things they had done. And Ray was sitting there just eating a chocolate bar, listening to him. They're in a foxhole. When all of a sudden, a live grenade comes into the foxhole. Brennan said, Ray looked at him, smiled, dropped his chocolate bar, and threw himself on the grenade. It exploded, killing Ray, but spared the life of Brennan. He left the army after the war, and because of what had happened, he became a priest. And as he was moving into the priesthood, he was instructed to take on the name of a saint. He thought of his friend, Ray Brennan, and so he took the name Brennan. Brennan Manning's really not Brennan Manning, he was Ray, or something else Manning. But he tells that years later, he went to visit Ray's mother in Brooklyn. And they sat up late one night having tea talking about Ray, and it was in a moment there that Brennan looked at Ray's mom and said, do you think, do you think Ray loved me? To which Mrs. Brennan got up off the couch, shook her finger in front of my face and shouted, what more could he have done for you? And Brennan Manning said that in that moment he experienced an epiphany. He imagined himself standing before the cross of Jesus, wondering, does God really love me? And he could see Jesus' mother, Mary, pointing to the cross of Jesus and saying, what more could he have done for you? The cross of Jesus is God's way of doing all he could do for us. And yet we so often wonder, does God really love me? Am I important? Does God care? Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. How do I respond to that? Do I bury it? Blame others? Beat myself up? None of those things ever work. Instead, We're called to respond as scripture shows us as David did in Psalm 51 after his sin and guilt. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
For I know my transgression and my sin is always before you. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are right in your verdict and justified to judge me. And I would just like to remind you today that all of us fallen, instead of burying, blaming, and beating ourselves up, the scriptures call us to do these three things. Admit it. Own it. Don't hide from it. Have a self-awareness as David did. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Not only admit it, but accept responsibility. David completely in this psalm is not looking, hey, Bathsheba was involved with me also. My military leaders, they were complicit with me. It's kind of all of us together here. No, David, no one else matters. Against you and you only have I sinned. Admit it. Accept responsibility. Ask for forgiveness. You notice there is no begging. There's no bribing. There's no bargaining here with David. There's just simply an utter reliance on the ask. I can't fix this. I can't make this better. I don't deserve anything. And yet, I ask for your forgiveness. I don't feel like I'm worthy. It doesn't matter. It's not contingent on your feelings. David is just saying, and real honestly, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love and your compassion. That's why 1 John says this, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Confession is this. It acknowledges the holiness of God. It acknowledges his rightful place in our lives. It admits that we are imperfect. It embraces the fact that we are not okay. And it submits to the belief that we need God's help. Admit. Admit it. Accept responsibility. And then simply ask for forgiveness. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It's not too good to be true. Because remember the cross. He paid. He paid for you to be forgiven. And the scriptures remind us that God forgives me instantly. Remember what Isaiah said? Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And he will freely There's no probationary period. There is no, hey, he'll forgive if you can show him some things. Like, okay, meet some conditions. Isaiah is telling them, listen, just turn right now. Think about Nineveh. Remember the story of Nineveh, how wicked they were. Jonah shows up, preaches the gospel. They repent in an instant. God forgives them in an instant. I mean, wickedness. Like, God promises to forgive there is no probationary period for forgiveness it's instant God forgives me completely God forgives me completely Colossians 2 
when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins. He canceled the charge against you. He has taken it away, nailing it to his cross. Remember the words of Psalm 103. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquity. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for, us, for those who fear him, who turn to him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He forgives instantly, he forgives completely, and he forgives freely. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Forgiveness and redemption are used together there on purpose to help us understand that the price has been paid by him. It has been paid in full. And that's why the scriptures say, if we confess, God is, Wants to forgive, is that what it says? God is faithful and just. Why is he faithful and just? Because the work of Jesus Christ is so large that there is absolutely nothing more needed for your forgiveness. It's like if there's a scale and the sins of the whole world are tipping the scale like this. And often we think of Jesus like balancing the scales back out. But I would submit to you that the scriptures remind us that as Jesus, as the, the scales of our, uh, the sin weighs the scales here, Jesus dies, it doesn't go like this, it goes like this. And that God is only faithful and just to freely forgive because the work of Jesus is that large. God forgives instantly, completely, and freely. And so this morning, this is love, that God forgives our sins. And as we walk toward the Holy Week, I wanted to remind you of this today. I wanted to hopefully, once again in these few moments, at the beginning of your week, cross your mind pathways with the reality that you are forgiven in a way you cannot even comprehend. I want to talk to those people that are here that walk with Christ but also experience failure like we all do at times and we deal and struggle at times. And so often it's easy to remember that, well, God forgave me and I became a Christian and then we sometimes lose sight of the fact that Lamentation says that God's mercy is new to us every morning. The forgiveness that saved you is the forgiveness that is continually offered to you each and every day. That's the nature of this forgiveness offer. Would you drink deeply in that today once again? And then once again, maybe I'm talking to people here who don't really understand this, have never walked into this and never experienced this. Today I invite you Open your heart, admit, accept, ask. Allow God to forgive you instantly, completely, freely. And so I invite you to stand as we finish with communion, coming to the Lord's table. This today is our confession. 
This today is our God is holy. I am imperfect. I can't do nothing about it. I need God's help. The cross. So as we sing a verse, I ask you just to reflect on that. And then I'll come up and we'll take these elements together after we've sung this first verse. Thanks for listening to this week's message from the Napoleon Church of the Nazarene. We invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 9 or 10.30 a.m. for weekly worship and community with other believers. For more information about upcoming events or ways you can connect, find us on Facebook or visit us at napnaz.org. Have a great week.